Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Man, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. I am so thankful each and every week. Uh, for the team that Jay helps lead, uh, that prepares our hearts so well through music to uh, hear the word, the sound crew and uh, slide crew that serve us so well so that we can get to this moment and, and hear this is the word of the Lord and respond thanks be to God and, and know that what an unspeakable mercy it is that we heard that word and that we didn't die. <laughs> that we're alive, and we are prepared so well to hear that each and every week. I'm so thankful for that. Well, if there was an overstatement to be made, you'd want to do it right at the beginning of a sermon, right? So this is the time for overstatements and saying something that will really grab your attention. But the reality is that there's no overstatement to say that this text is one of the most important passages in all the Scripture, clearly one of the most important passages in the, New, or in the Old Testament, it's foundational, it's central to Old Testament theology, it's central to the book of Deuteronomy, which is key and central to all of Old Testament, and is so much of the foundation for which we need to move forward for just this book, but also well beyond. This command that's given here is the foundation for all of the rest of Deuteronomy and all the rest of Old Testament theology. And it's a really simple uh, passage, really simple command. Moses says here in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, he, he gives the, the, the command. This is the famous Shema, which means here. And he says, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, it may not have sounded like it as I said that, but that is one of the kindest, most gracious commands that we could ever receive. And it's here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. With all of their eyes set toward the promised land, Moses steps up and says in this moment, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, hear. And after the, what we've been moving through and Moses has been rehearsing with them, how much grace is on that word, the, the word that they, they can now hear something and not die. And he says again, hear. How much grace is built into this now that we've heard what the, the word of God can, can make you feel and do. And now they're saying, hear. And it's such a grace that that surely wouldn't have been lost on them. So close to the Sinai experience. So close to hearing God thunder those ten words. And they're still alive. And now they get this gracious command from Moses. And he says, hear, O Israel. And that is who is to hear this command. It's Israel. The same people that were in Sinai, new generation, and they were to be, as the people of God, perpetual hearers. They were to be, the people of God were to be, people of the ear. This is why you see this oft-repeated command in Deuteronomy, hear, and here it is again, 
Hear, O Israel. Hearing uh, is the quintessential response to the voice of God, to the word of God from the people of God. And when we hear that word hear, it, it is listen, it is obey, it is doing. It, it is not just merely to go through the physical act of, of letting the vibrations come out from Moses' mouth and letting it, allowing it to hit their ears. It is to be listening with attentiveness in this uh, uh, already desire, disposition to obey what is being said because what is being said is coming from God. And it is a mercy that is coming down to them to where they can hear. But hearing is this basis for all other responses, and all other responses are going to flow from this because the one who is speaking this is the authority. He is the authoritative one who, when he speaks, everyone should hear, and that should direct and guide every aspect of their lives. So what are they to hear specifically? Again, this is one of the most important biblical statements that is in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm going to point out just that it says our God. There's, there's an interesting detail there in that this was the people that God himself had gone after. He chose them. He redeemed them from slavery to the Egyptians, and he brought them to this place. He is the one who spoke to them. This is a God who has revealed himself to Israel as their God, even the name, the Lord, where it's all caps, L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the name Yahweh, the name that the Lord has revealed specifically to Moses to give to this people. This is a specific God. This is not any God. It's the Lord our God. He has revealed himself to them as the Lord our God. He's revealed himself to them in his mighty acts and redemption of Egypt. He's revealed himself to them in mighty words that he gave them at Sinai and now through Moses. This is the Lord our God who is this God who is set apart from all other gods. He's completely unique and exclusive. And so when we turn to this phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, while the Lord our God, Lord is one, could point to Israel as having one God. In opposition to the nations of, of Canaan, which would have had many gods, they, they are to be this nation that is to have one God. It could be pointing to that. It could be pointing to God's singularity, that monotheism, that, that there is one God. Not many gods, that there is one God. It could be pointing to that. It also could be pointing to God's unity, that God is one in, in purpose and will and mind and heart, that he is one. And, and all three have some sense of truth. I say some sense. All of them are true if we make sure that we're careful with that word singularity. Yes, that God is, is, has, is a singularity, but not a mathematical singularity, as we'll find out. Actually, the, the word one that is used here of God, that the Lord is one, is the same word that, that is used in Genesis when God says the two, Adam and Eve, shall become one. So it's not a mathematical singularity. But what I think that Moses is getting at in saying the Lord our God, the Lord as one, it seems to be mainly pointing to God's uniqueness. That he is utterly set apart and completely exclusive. Already Moses has said, if you look back in chapter 3, verse 24, O Lord our God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who could do such works and mighty acts as yours. Or in chapter 4, verse 35, 32 down through 39 could be 
used, but I'll go with 35 and 39. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Or skip down to verse 34 or 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. That the Lord our God, that he is one, is to say that this is the God who is unparalleled, unrivaled, completely unique, and that he's their Lord. What a mercy that they get this statement given to them, that they are to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One suggests that the spirit of this, and I think this is right, isn't so much about the singularity of God or the unity of God, but the exclusivity of God, the uniqueness of God, that there is no other beside him. He says that it's the spirit of it is captured like this. Yahweh, which is the translation of the Lord, Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone. When we see this, this Shema, this the Lord our God, the Lord is one, this is no lifeless slogan. These are words that are meant to lead them to worship. This is the unique God. You might know the Pythagorean theorem. I know it. What's up? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's a true formula. But I do not say it with any sense of adoration. You aspiring math students, you might know it, and you probably likely agree, like, yeah, no adoration in knowing A squared plus B squared equals C squared. When we come to Deuteronomy 6, 4, these are not words of a formula. These are words to live by. These aren't just true words. They, they point to God's uniqueness, the Lord's uniqueness. They are words that should make God's people wonder as they hear of God's exclusivity as the one true living God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone. Now, we agree with precision and need precision in doing theology. Precision matters. I like to be very precise, especially when thinking about the words of God, truths of God for God's people. We need to be precise. It matters. When we're thinking about verse 4, we need to be precise. That matters. But that precision needs to lead us to adoration. You can say it like a formula, but don't say it without adoration and wonder at who this God is. When is the last time you considered the exclusivity of your God and his uniqueness, and it led you to wonder? Maybe you should do it now. See, here's what can happen, is that we can and should affirm the right truths about God. We should say, yes, God is unity. He is this one in purpose and will and heart and mind, that he is a singularity. Not mathematically, but we know that he is one God who exists in three persons, but he's one God. Yes, we should say that, but we should say that this is God who is unique, that he is exclusive, that he stands alone, that there is no other God beside him, and that Truth, that reality that we get the grace to hear should lead us to worship him as that God. And because this God is exclusively the Lord and is utterly unique before them and before all of the earth, he is to be given exclusive devotion. It's again why we think that maybe verse 4 is pointing more to his exclusivity, his uniqueness than all those other things. It's because what he's going to call them to do is give him some exclusivity in their lives exclusive devotion, total allegiance, wholehearted loyalty to this one true living God. And so Moses moves from the command to hear to the command to love, which is the natural and right outflow from the, the verb, from the command to hear. Verse 5, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God commands love. That reality alone should blow us away, that God would command love. But, but when you come to this and you think, well, God is commanding love, who commands love? What kind of God is this? Is he needy? Is he desperate for love? God is commanding love, not as one who is needy or pining for affection. He's not one who's lonely and needing relationship. This is the God who first loved them. So it's not as if he came to them to to love. He came to them to show his love, to demonstrate his love, not to primarily receive love. He chose them out of all the nations of the earth. He chose Israel. He redeemed them. He carried them as a father carries a son. He spoke to them. He made a covenant with them. This is a God who wants it to go well with them, that they might live long in the land that he had promised to give them. Why? Because it's flowing out of who he is. He is this merciful, loving God. He has first loved them. God has gone all in with Israel, not because he's needy or lonely, but because he is merciful and loving. One author writes this, that the whole law is permeated by the thought, Jehovah first loved you, sought you out, redeemed you, took you up into his covenant. Hence, you must love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So this love command isn't desperate. It's revealing from God the right response to his love that has first been shown to them. This response is clearly not to be some half-hearted response. Lukewarm, apathetic. This is love to the fullest extent. Love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. The, the word heart in Hebrew, one author says, is, refers to the core of who you are, the center of each person. It refers, in particular, to the place where we feel, where we think, and where we make decisions and plans, i.e., emotions, mind, will. So in our vocabulary, especially around Valentine's Day, that the head and the heart can kind of be disjointed in separate places. But that's not true of Hebrew. When it it speaks of the heart, it's speaking of those together. So it's the feelings and the emotions. Proverbs 15, 13, in the heart, there's, there's gladness and there's sorrow. In Deuteronomy 29, there's reasoning, right? With the heart, you understand. This is reasoning here. The, the mind is at play here. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, here's the will. With the heart, one makes plans. There's a a will there. So the the feelings and the mind and the will are all to be places that are filled with love for God, that are directed toward God. He is to have this exclusive place in their minds, in their feelings and emotions, in their wills, their reasoning, their planning. He is to have an exclusive place, and that place is to be filled with love for God. They're to love God with all their hearts and with all their soul. The soul is the, uh, as one author says, the organ of desire, the organ of vital needs. It encapsulates the the deepest desires of one's life. The, the, The very roots of life are found in the soul. Love one with one's heart and one's soul and with one's strength. I think that strength probably is functioning here adverbally. That is to say that you are to love with all your heart 
and with all your soul. In other words, you're to love with who you are to the fullest extent. I don't think that what they're doing here is, is trying to give us a strict kind of anatomy and dividing up the person. And I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think what he's trying to do here is capture the idea of totality. That every part of your being, inside and outside, like it's all captured, all influenced by love for God. And God commands their exclusive allegiance, their wholehearted loyalty, their fullest extent love. God wants his people to respond to all that he is and all that he does with all that they are. Notice that God doesn't command more than one can give. All that you have, your heart and your soul and all your strength. And so we could look at this command and say, well, how could I ever do that? But the problem with loving God with our heart and soul and strength will never be a capacity problem as if there's not, a love, not enough love in us to give to God. The, the problem with obeying this command will not be lack of capacity, but will be with misplaced love, disordered love. Think about Exodus chapter 32. This is the infamous golden calf incident. They, at that place, are offering sacrifices to this golden calf that they sacrifice their own gold for to make, right? They're offering sacrifices. They're feasting. In other words, this is a time full of love. Now, you may not have heard it described like that, but here's, they, they are loving. They're full of it, but they're directing it somewhere. They weren't lacking love. It was just misplaced. It was wrongly directed. It was disordered. And God's command here to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your strength is a command to direct and order love rightly. There should be no confusion on the primacy of the place of love for God. Nothing should rival him. He should be the one that is above all in our affections and receives above all our attention that we love him with all that we are because of all that he is and all that he has done. And not only should this have this prime place in the lives of his people then, but we think about the command moving forward. This is a, a command that is to have the primacy of place as a command for God's people because we see in Jesus. Remember the lawyers, the, 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 the ones who were the legal experts of the time, they came to Jesus and they came to trick him. And so they're going to ask him a question they think that might kind of you know, put him off a little bit. So which command is the greatest? So that maybe he can be shed in a negative light to some. So they come and they ask him, and there may have been a real question among them in a debate, but they're trying to divide Jesus up here and trying to make him look bad. And they say, which command is the greatest? And he responds with this. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so this is an ongoing command that's needed for God's people. Obviously, we are to be people who worship the Lord God alone, that we are to love Him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. And while we might come to this command and think, well, how could I do that? Or even question, do I even have the capacity to love God like that with all that I am? Our primary problem is going to be the same, misplaced love, disordered love. Go to a game and see if we have enough capacity to love things. Go to a concert and see if people are full of love, have the capacity that is just full, brimming, to overflowing in their actions and their words with love. I mean, pick a thing. I just mentioned a few, and there are places that are just full of 
love. Our primary problem is that it's misplaced and disordered. In all those places, there's loving, I guarantee you, in a game, a concert, wherever, you name it, there's going to be one that's loving those things with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. You've seen it. Maybe you've done it. The problem is that we're all spiritually adulterers who give our love away to less lovely things, to other things that are not the Lord our God, the unique one, the one that should stand above all, that there is no other one, that he should receive this primacy of place. We, the, the problem is that we're spiritual adulterers and we've given our love to other things. So when we ask the question, how can we love God with all that we are, we need to remember that this is a right ordering of our love. And we get that right then it changes how we approach this question. So how then are we to obey this seemingly insurmountable command? I mean, how can I ever be faithful to love God with all that I am, with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength? John Newton wrote this beautiful uh, song, hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus. And, and listen to one of the verses. I think he's right in how he says this. Weak is the effort of my heart. And cold my warmest thoughts. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Weak is the effort of my heart. Don't we feel that? We know that this is weak or, or cold even towards the Lord. Our warmest thought, it seems like that is, I wake up and I think, man, my warmest thought toward God is so cold toward him. How am I going to move away from that? Here's what he says, but when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. How do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength? You see him as he is. In other words, our love for him is to respond to who he is. We are responding in love to his love that has first came to us. We are responding to who he is and what he has done with all that we are. Love, one author says, awakens love in return. Remember that when God commanded this of Israel to be loving towards him with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, it is he that had first loved them. This is not a command that has not been put into a context where he has first chosen them, redeemed them, given them a covenant, made it with them, carried them, loved them as a father to a son. They are to respond to those things with love. Their love is a response to his love. His love for them is to awaken love in return for him. And the same is true for the command for us to love God. His love is to awaken our love. It's to capture our love, capturing our heart, our soul, even our strength is being bent toward the love of God because he has first loved us. This is love that it would pursue us. 1 John 4.10, I can't get away, Right? This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He didn't find us lovely. He came after us because he is love. We're just responding to that. He, he pursues us in love. He purchases us in love, right? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates it to us in that while we were still sinners, his enemies, Christ dies for us. He pursues us. He purchases us. He frees us from our sin and from death. He empowers us. He sustains us. He has first loved us. And as Isaac Watts wrote in one of his hymns, he said, love so amazing, so divine, what does it demand? 
in response, demands my soul, my life, my all. This command from the Lord is so kind when seen rightly, so gracious that the primary response that God would demand of his people is a response to his love that has been overflowing to them first. And he doesn't say, first, here's what you need to do. You need to work for me. You need to serve me. Those things need to happen. Here's what he says is primary. Love me. With all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In response to all that I am and all that I've done for you in first loving you. And when we do that, that does change our lives, right? It changes how we live And that's what Moses is going to go on to tell them. That when this command, when you love God, when he has this primacy of place in your heart and your soul and your strength, then this command then all of a sudden is to be stamped all over your life. And the first place to stamp this command is on the heart. Again, Moses repeats it in verse 6. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Again, Moses wants to make sure that the command hits the right organ. Heart, that's the one. Make sure that you have it on your heart. That is your feelings, your reasoning, your will are all to know the impact of love for God. And and that command to love God is to permeate their lives. There's this primacy, though, to the heart. Because the heart, as we know, as the place of the feelings, the reasoning, the will, is the wellspring of life. Out of the heart flows everything else. And so he says, reiterates, verse 6, put this on your heart. Moses, he, he, in a way, kind of preemptively strikes against Israel being a people whose lips are close to God, who honor God with their lips, but hearts are far from him. And we need to not rush past verse 6 because that is so often could easily be said of us. This command is to be on our hearts Must we be a people who, again, honor God with our mouth and our lips and our words, but are far from Him in our hearts? Some are too quick to then take this command to love God with all of our heart and to try to make it practical and make it a checklist so that they can give real effort to it. And and you should do all those things. There's a lot of effort that goes into all your might, right? But first, before we have a checklist and we start checking off how I can love God with all my heart, we need to make sure we have our hearts actually captured by that love that we actually have our hearts captured by that redemption that God has given, actually have our hearts captured by the covenant that he's made with us. And then in response to that, we move forward. Verse 6 is needed for us, that we need to have these words on our heart. And if this word is on our heart, then it will start permeating the rest of our lives. Our outward behavior will follow. Verse 7 through 9 kind of talk through this. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Don't just write them on your heart, write them on your lips, write them on your life. They should be on your heart, on your lips and on your life. The command is to be stamped everywhere, and the command is for all of God's people. Isn't it interesting here that this is, this is a command that's for the priests, sure, but also for parents. 
It's to be carried out by, in these festivals, formal feasts, and daily activities like walking or laying down. Children are involved here. They're to be listening, receiving, and maybe perhaps even teaching themselves. It's to be on their lips as well. It's not just to be formal occasions. It's for all occasions. It's for daily activities. It's for the, the kind of the formal things and the ordinary things. And, and the, the covenant mediators, prophet, priests, and kings, and the, the, the covenant receivers, the, the every, everybody. Teach them diligently to your children is how he starts in verse 7. In other words, he's saying this is something that needs to be passed on from generation to generation. And it seems obvious to them probably and to us that the immediate way to apply this is to parents. That, that parents then are, are to then make this a dominant conversation with their children. And I think that's the right wordage there. Dominant conversation. Since we know that this command is called by Jesus as the greatest command, then I think that the application of this command is similar. It hasn't lessened in degree for us today. As if we're less needy of this to be on our hearts, on our lips, and on our lives today. It hasn't lessened for parents. It hasn't lessened to the importance and the urgency of passing this on from generation to generation. I love how Jesus models these words so well. Which, again, reminds us that although it may be the, the easiest way to apply this is from parents to their children, that it's not just immediate family that would be involved in passing this on from generation to generation. Jesus, he models this so well. What does he do? He goes and he teaches in the synagogue, the kind of the formal setting. He takes up the word of God and he reads it and he explains it. But he also walks with his disciples on the road. And he looks around. Now, you remember, he's by the scene. He's like, let's go catch some fish. Also, you're going to be fishers of men. I see that field. Oh, how they're spreading seed. Oh, there's something about that, too. Vine. I'm the vine. Fig tree. You know, and then he curses it. I mean, this is a, a teacher who teaches along the way. Lying down, getting up. He's, he's one who models this so well. He, he will teach in the temple, and he'll teach on the mountain. Paul does this, too, doesn't he? He goes to the synagogue, but he also will go to the river. And whoever's gathered there to pray, like, let's talk about Jesus. And he'll go to Mars Hill, and he'll go right into that, and he'll sink his teeth into, oh, here's an unnamed God. Let me tell you about that. He does this all along the way. He's, he's teaching. The, in other words, the, the words of God are on his lips. So, again, the, this is not the only context for which we can apply this, but it's probably the most immediate is to think about parents. Parents, what's the dominant conversation in your home with your kids? What's the dominant conversation in your car? What's the dominant conversation at the table? What's the dominant conversation at the bedside? Are, are those places void of God? Do they just receive that maybe here? Because I, I, we look at this and we can try to slice it up a number of ways and it, it just seems like it's, it's clear that it's everywhere. That there's not one place that's sacred in this. That this... This command is going to be on their lips in all sorts of places. So what's the dominant conversation in your home? Man, we will have all sorts of conversations in our car, won't we? I just passed a car the other day, and like, it was obvious that there was some yelling going on in the car, and there are three kids in the back. And sometimes that's my car. We'll have all kinds of conversations in the car or at the table. But we're to use those times for something Good. We certainly know how to fill those times, right? We will have those times filled with something, but are we directing it Godward? 
Is there an element of teaching about God and love for God in all those daily moments? Now, here's the thing. This isn't like a a fairy tale. This isn't magical. This, this is just on the ground running, all right? So we were, I was playing this song one time uh, on the iPad. It's called Cling to the Crucified. And I was playing it, and I was just telling our kids, this has been years ago, that basically like the, the, the words, cling to the crucified, are just telling us, right? no matter what's going on, we, we, just, we hang on tight to Jesus. No matter what we're facing, we can depend upon him and trust him. And one of my kids replied as they looked out the window, I'm facing the tree. Well, if you're facing the tree, cling to the crucified, right? It's like, good talk, kids. Like, here's your food. It's not magical. Um, I may have failed there. But we tried to make it a point of conversation, right? Cling to the crucified. Just a nutshell of what you can use at your house. But parents, we, we recognize that, that no one has more time with our kids than we do. do, do you, you should recognize this. If you don't know this, parents, no one has more time with your children than you do. No one has more influence and discipleship in your children than you do. And, and make no mistake, discipleship is absolutely happening. So the only question is, is what kind of discipleship are they receiving? Man, some of these quotes are going to come in hot for some of us, but... Richard Baxter says that ungodly parents, this is 1600s, right? He's not, he's not new, not know our modern schedules and days, but he says, ungodly parents serve the devil so effectually in the first impressions on their children's minds. Can we just say simply like, don't serve the devil? Definitely don't serve him effectually. Make an impression on your kids' minds that's directed Godward. And again, this could go beyond the immediate family, right? Like, don't serve the enemy by making impressions on on the young's mind that would point them away from the Lord. Point them Godward. Turn them to Him. And too often, I I think our schedule takes control and dictates discipleship. That even sounds weird to say, but I think it's true that the schedule takes control, dictates what's going on. But I think it seems to be so often a true way to explain what happens in parenting. And we just need to say, like, let's make sure that the command is on our hearts so that it doesn't just receive primacy of place in our own lives, but receives primacy of place in our schedule. If, if, if we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, then we need to let the schedule follow suit, schedule things rightly. And we need to remember that when we schedule things, that life is a mist and a vapor. And parents, don't you know this? Man, the days seem long, but the years, whew, they go quick. Life is a mist. Let's schedule it rightly. We need to see our kids rightly. Children are eternal beings. That sounds simple. But if they are eternal beings, then let's not pour everything out just for the present for them. We can work so hard to make sure that they're taken care of here and now, and that's part of our responsibility. But they're also eternal beings. So let's make sure that we work hard to make sure they're prepared for that as best as we know how to. 
Let's prepare them for eternity. I mean, uh, Richard Baxter said, just kind of quipped like, hey, they inherited their sin from you. The least you can do is give them the good news. It's so true. One author says that if children were nothing more than a gift for this life, it would be a good gift, right? Gift from the Lord. A single-minded focus on children's happiness and success might make sense. Maybe, if this was all we had. As long as the family's frantic schedule secures a spot for the child in a top-tier university, forfeiting intentional spiritual formation for the sake of competitive sports leagues and advanced placement classes would be understandable. If, if children were a gift for this life only. If children were a gift for this life only, maybe it would make sense to raise them with calendars that are full but souls that are empty captives of the deadly delusion that their value depends on what they accomplish here and now. If. Church, children are, they're not just a gift for right now. We're looking around at young kids and we're hearing their noise every Sunday and you need to recognize that perhaps these are future kings and queens that are going to rule along with me if I'm in Christ. These are those who are inheriting what Christ gives to those who are in him, which is everything. So when we look and we see and we teach and we think about it, like we need to think with that kind of like gravity and weight that these are eternal beings. And then we need to shape our lives accordingly and not just pour our lives out for the things that are here and now for their sake working so hard to make sure they're materially provided for. That can be good and right, but man, they need to be spiritually provided for. And we are one of the primary means that God is going to use as those primary influences in our lives to put before them the grace of God, the love of God, to point them to his goodness, to tell them, here's what's commanded of you. This is what you're accountable to. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might because he has first loved you. Let's not be under this deadly delusion that their value depends upon what they accomplish here and now or what they receive here and now. They're eternal beings who have inherited from us sin nature, so let's give them the love of God. We put it before them. We get it to their ears and pray that God would open up their hearts and may it sink in. If there's something, maybe even a good thing, like I mentioned, the, the quote mentioned, top tier university, um, competitive sports league, advanced pe- placement classes. If, if there's something, any of those things, those may be good things that takes all the time away from discipleship, then that thing is an idol. And now all of a sudden we've, we've gone back to word number two that says cut out all idols and we do that thing. We say we've got to cut this out because the Lord is God alone. And we want to make time for the things that should be given time. Our love is to not be misplaced or disordered but directed at God. And we want that for our children as well, the next generation. And so we're not going to give our lives to and give over them to things that don't last. And so we direct our teaching and our time and our lips to the love of God. Now, this is, again, not only for parents. There's lots of contexts, even in this verse, that that there's all sorts of things outside of parents that might be included. 
And so that it, it is good for us all to ask, what's on our lips? This is an everybody kind of command here, right? Teach everybody. Not, not just priests, not just prophets and kings. Like, teach. So what's on our lips? What are we teaching? And Moses says that this command should be on our lips, but also should be on our lives, adorning our lives. Verse 8 and 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be as frontlets be- they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These verses have been taken literally at times, and, and it's, it is not certain whether they should be taken literally or, or in a literal sense. Uh, so we don't know for sure if you should actually, if they should have actually applied it by binding it on their heads and on their doorposts and on their hands or not. Some actually did this. So you've seen the phylacteries, the, the box on their head. But what I think at least Moses is getting at is that this is to permeate all of life, public life and private life, life in community, life alone, life with your family, life at work, everywhere. It's to permeate all of life. And so when we think about this command of like, well, thank goodness that Jesus has come fulfilling this law so we don't have to put boxes on our heads. Before we do that, let's ask the question, what's adorning our lives? Is there conscious attention being given to God's law of love everywhere in our lives? Because yeah, we... We, we may not need to take that, they may not have needed to take that literally. I think that it was probably more of a metaphorical way of putting it. Put it in front of your eyes. Keep it everywhere. Make sure you're putting conscious attention to loving the Lord your God. And so that's at the root level what we need to be asking. Are we giving conscious attention to God's law of love everywhere? Maybe a box on our head would remind us to do that. And when we come to the end and we ask that question, we know the answer, don't we? And our, our conscience likely right now is bearing witness. Those who have the spirit in them is probably bearing witness, a conviction of sins there. We've failed. We know the answer. Are we paying attention to God's love everywhere? Are we letting it permeate our lives? Are we trying to direct all of our lives, all that we are, to all that he is and all that he has done? The answer is no. Today, for you, maybe in the last like hour, the answer is no. We failed. Thankfully, we get the chance to begin again. Maybe even right now, begin again. One author says this, remarkably, in the New Testament, the words kyrios, which is Lord, which translates Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital G, which translates Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is regularly applied to Jesus. So if the Shema... Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, summarizes the message of the Old Testament by teaching that Yahweh is Lord over all. So the confession, Jesus is Lord, summarizes the message of the New Testament. And one author tells us so well that Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely, and if you fail him, which we have, will forgive you eternally. So we need on our lips... Not just the Lord our God, the Lord is one, but Jesus is Lord because he is the one who will fulfill us and forgive us. Do you know the Lord our God? It's he who first loved you, me, us. We are kindly commanded in response to that love that he has given to us. 
We are kindly called to that in response to that command, that love that he has given to us. We are kindly invited, graciously invited in response to the love that he has first shown to us to respond to him with loving him with all that we are because of all that he is, all that he has done. Let's love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Now, one way we can do this, one way to respond as both a sinner and one who's been captured by the love of God is to respond in the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that is saying, we haven't lived up. But Jesus finished the work that was necessary for us. And so we come to this table and we want to revel in the victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, this meal is for you to be reminded of those great truths. That yeah, you haven't loved God as you ought, but by God's grace... He has come after you, rescued you, saved you, so that now you can see more of him. And the more you see of him, the more you're going to love him as you ought to love him. So come to the table and be reminded of the work of Jesus. Look at what he's done. And then look forward and be reminded that one day my loves will no longer be misplaced or disordered, that they're going to be fully, wholeheartedly to him. Look forward to that day. If you're not a believer, we say you have disordered loves. But there's a better love for you. God has first loved you. He sent his son to die that you might know him and love him. We'd say, look to him and be saved. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded again this morning that you are a God who speaks. And you have commanded us to hear. And God, what you've commanded us is too much for us, Lord. We, in and of ourselves, are helpless to love you. And you knew that, Lord. And you gave this command, having founded it on your love for us. And because of that, Lord, we can love you. You pursued us, Lord. You chose us, not because of our talents or our intelligence or our gifting, but simply because you loved us and you are full of grace. Lord, forgive us where we chase idols. Forgive us where our love is misplaced. Lord, I know in my own life, it is a constant battle. This world competes for my passions. It competes for fulfillment. And it just cannot offer what you offer, Lord. We're grateful that you are a God who fulfills us completely and forgives us eternally. We are in need of forgiveness often. God, help us to be disciplined, to realize the fruit of that discipline in staying in your word and committing to community, committing to hearing the teaching of your word. God, we need it in our minds and in our hearts. We need it constantly to surround us and remind us of what's true and good. Help us, Lord, for those of us who are parents to model that for our kids, to not 
to not take an approach that would try to hire out the responsibility, God, that you have given us alone. God, give us wisdom in what that looks like. The, the busy schedules just really hit me hard. I, I know, Lord, we are a busy society and in many ways, Lord, it's unnecessary. God, give us wisdom to know how to navigate, what to cut out, what to include. More than anything, God, help us to prioritize the things that you prioritize. If we are not discipling our kids, Lord, who are we discipling? Help us to do this well and to be faithful in it. And we know, Lord, if we don't love you as parents, that we can't teach our kids to love you. So, Father, again, just thank you for this word. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, God, and giving us men like Dylan who can stand and teach it so powerfully, Lord, driven by your spirit. We are grateful for him and his diligence and pray that you continue to keep your hand on his life, on his family, that he may just continue to faithfully bring what we desperately need. Open our ears, God. Help us to hear and obey. In Christ's name, amen.